Happy Hobo Week and welcome back to Coffee with Kojo, a podcast produced by the School of Communication and Journalism at South Dakota State University. My name is Dr. Rocky Daly and I'm an associate professor in the school. This week our guest is 1987 journalism alum John Mollison. John is the host of Old Guys and Their Airplanes, an award-winning video series that has been broadcast on public broadcasting. He is also a writer and artist known for his work recreating images of military aircraft. John spoke with our student host Sam Shower earlier this week. I'm a true blue Dakotan. I was born in North Dakota, went to school up there, and then I moved to Pierce, South Dakota, graduated from high school. And uh, actually, I'm an SDSU alum, you know, alumni. There we go. And so I've been a a Dakotan all my life, and I like it. I like it, yeah. So then uh, you came to SDSU for journalism, correct? Uh, I have no idea. Well, actually, I do know why I came to SDSU. I came to SDSU because I wanted to be close to my high school girlfriend. Mm. And that's that's a terrible reason to pick a university. But I ended up uh, being here. I've always enjoyed writing. I wrote for the school paper at Riggs High, and I've always enjoyed writing and artwork. And uh, the idea of public opinion and, and how does that, that narrative or those stories get crafted and communicated. So journalism to me was a natural, a natural major and a natural course of study. Okay, and then you, you worked for the Collegian, too, while you were at SDSU here? Or? Absolutely. Got a, fa- Absolutely. got a favorite story in mind? No, I don't, and I don't even want anybody looking at old Collegians and finding my column. They're, they're wretched, they're, they're immature to the point where I'm embarrassed. I've got a stack of them, I've, and I still can't throw them away, but every time <laughs> I look at them, I think those have to be burned. But a good story, I don't, I don't know, back at the time... The, the, the collegian was a family. We would, you know, we had a typesetter and sometimes I'd lay out my own column. You know, you run through the typesetter, you wax it, cut it apart, fix typos with an exacto knife, ruby lith, those things that people today just don't appreciate. And it makes me feel like a grumpy old man, old man you know, back in my day, <laughs> ruby lith. You don't know, you don't care, but it makes me feel strong. <laughs> Oh my goodness! Yeah, I I don't know what you're talking about. Honestly, I'm just glad that we just type it out. You missed it. You missed Ruby Lift <laughs> and acetates and typesetters. My goodness! You think about journalism right now. Journalism happens so fast because you go send boom, your broadcast. But back then, I'd have to write a column. My editor and I would go over it. Peg Coughlin, she was wonderful. And we would lay it out, and you'd actually see it before it got printed. But there was a sense of time. There was a sense of nurturing, a sense of sweating out details that even right now, I mean, I can write a blog and shoot 15,000 people will read my blog, and it happens in a click. But back then, it happened over time because we'd send it out to get printed. You know, there was this great ebb and flow of how information happened but now it's not even an ebb and flow. do you write for the collegian sale i do I'm a, I'm a reporter i don't write much but uh, i mean i'm two for two both my stories got in the paper so far so right. okay awesome awesome what kind of stories do you like to write uh, i just like writing like uh news stories just like hit stuff like um like my first one was about what sdsu was doing to help mental illness um that was my first ever story that was a 
giant story that really no <laughs> kidding. really tested me, but I got it done. Uh, I think it was like the second page of the paper, and I'm very proud of it. And then just this past year, I just wrote a quick profile on a teacher that I like, and she's uh, leaving after this year. So both of them are interesting to read, and um, I'm happy for them both. So so you're a, a typical journalism <laughs> journalism student. Story, story once a month, pretty much. Story once a month. Got it. <laughs> Uh, all right. So then, um, so then after SDSU, uh, what did you do after? Did you just like find like a work at like a newspaper place, or did you uh, like? No, start? I, I did what all proper journalists should do. I went into advertising. <laughs> I, I started creating, you know, the, the 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 mechanism to sell stuff, and that became my career. I, I ended up in public relations and, and communications. I, I think my greater professional success was in training and that is journalism in its own way you know but advertising is probably the best way to say what I did after I, I went to school and I, we had at the time at SDSU and uh, advertising I think emphasis or minor that's what they called it emphasis and I was very fortunate to follow a career path that is exactly what I was Supposed to be, not saying I did. Supposed to be learning. <laughs> so then, where did this idea for? Uh, so let me, I'm going to make sure I'm saying it uh, right. Uh, where did your idea for old guys and uh, me drawing airplanes come from? Or yeah. <laughs> well, it it it's part and parcel. I Sam, inside my not only do I have all my uh, columns, but I also have my notebooks that from going to school here at SDSU in journalism class. And I should have brought them because I could prove to you, I hear I was drawing airplanes. And I just, I drew airplanes when I was a little kid. When I was three years old, my mom would keep me busy by putting a stack of paper and some crayons. And then she'd get the model airplane box from the model airplanes my dad was building. And she would look at the cover and she would say, okay, see that scene? And there were these really cool paintings, you know, bullets and flames and stuff like that. And she'd say, draw what happened next. So I'd be looking at, let's just say, a, a picture of a Japanese KI-84 going through a formation stream of B-29s. Total nerded out right there. I mean, there's probably one kid on campus who understands what I just said. <laughs> but I would then draw the next scene where the bombers are now going away from Japan and their airplanes are smoking and parachutes are coming out. And then she would have me describe what was going on, write about it. And I learned how to write and read before I went to school for first grade because I'd be reading all the other little paperbacks that my dad had about all these World War II heroes. Well, I, n I never really quit. <laughs> was, I mean, it was just my, my brain got in a feedback loop. I never really cared about anything else. And yet when I went into business and I started to become more successful and I had positions of authority and some positions of success and opportunities to lead and interact with other people, I found that the stories that I'd been reading about and the scenes that I'd been drawing were really the the human story of character, the real the human story of ethics, the real human story of how humans work. So in 
one of my professional opportunities, and I, I really don't want to go in, go get involved in it right now in the story, but I started to become mentored by a World War II fighter ace by the name of Bud Anderson. He, he's still alive, actually. I think he's 100-something. But what he did was respond to my question, you know, when you were 22 years old, you're leading people into combat. How did you interact with your other squadron mates? How did you maintain uh, leadership, uh, maintain integrity? How did you get work done in a high-stress environment? And he was so taken with that question that he opened up his Rolodex of, and that's another you know, old, old word, Rolodex, but it's a great word. He opened up his Rolodex of all these other aces from World War II and by that time, I was in a position where I could, I could draw the airplane and then pay to get it printed. So I would get them printed and give them to the families of these aces as kind of gifts to share amongst the family. And then they would sign a few, you know, autograph underneath the cowling. And I found out that people would pay me stupid amounts of money because the ace signed it. So my artwork started going all over the world. And it's true. It's in at least 14 countries, museums, galleries, collections. And then when I started writing about my interactions with these aces, because I just, I didn't have the 90 second interview or the 90 minute interview. I ended up spending, you know, nights in their houses, traveling Europe with them, going to Vietnam with them. You know what I mean? And so I, I got to know them and I'd write about it in my blog. And then that became popular. And now it's taken its own little organism and brought me here talking to you, Sam. <laughs> and you're awake. <laughs> awake yeah. Wake up. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was just interesting. I mean, those, you show me your drawings. Those are really good. I mean, like, did you, like, did you take, like, a little class here at SDSU? Or were you just, like, throughout your life, you just improved every year? No, I tried to explain that to you. Instead of taking the class, oh, I was in the bad. back doodling. Okay, yeah. So, yes, I spent five years learning how to draw airplanes at SDSU, but I was supposed to be, like, learning biology or uh, journalism or whatever. Okay, yeah, then I was sleeping. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so, in effect, yes, yes. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. So then, anyway, so you've so then yeah you've been to Europe, Vietnam. Um, you've traveled all over the place. Uh, do you have a favorite? You have like a favorite place you've been to? Like a favorite story for any of those places? Mm, a favorite story? I think I have a story that I think it, it exemplifies why I do and why I do it. So I got to walk on Normandy Beach with a fighter pilot who was flying over Normandy Beach on day one. Okay. Or, or D zero. I mean, it's this is June sixth, and he was, you know, if you if you think about D Day, everybody I think has seen the movie Saving Private Ryan, mm -hmm. but above the sky above D Day, uh, Normandy and Northern Europe was just jam packed with American airplanes. You know, there was like two German airplanes that actually managed to fly through, and they just miraculous that they weren't um, shot down, but. His name was Punchy Powell. His real name is Robert Powell. But Punchy was one of my spiritual godfathers. Anyway, this is the story. So we're walking. Tide is out. And if you ever go to Normandy, you can walk out when tide's out and walk way out there. And look at those bluffs, you know, the bluffs that would have the sparkling German machine guns and the German artillery. And look out to sea. And you can just imagine all the, 
all the uh, the landing craft and battleships and whatever that would be out there. You know, it was a total war theater. But at any rate, so Punchy and I are talking, and he's in, and we're, we're walking along, and he's describing what the site looked like just in the early morning hours of D-Day. Now, terrible weather. And so they would come in beneath the clouds, and then they would go above the clouds. But he was trying to describe what he was seeing. And most of what he was seeing was clouds and garbage, but every once in a while the, the clouds would break. And long story of it, Punchy and I were walking, but we were being followed by these two photographers. And one of them worked for some magazine. I never, I didn't know what the other one was. But as Punchy and I are walking, we're probably a mile, a mile and a half walking. And so that's, what, 20 minutes, 15, 18 minutes. And I remember looking back, and there was one of the photographers. And these photographers were in their late 30s, early 40s. And one of them was quite literally stopped, maybe a quarter mile behind, hunched over with his hands on his knees. It was clear he was exhausted trying to follow Punchy and I walking. <laughs> Well, the sidebar of it is, is that Punchy, he was, I think, 81 or 82 at the time, and Punchy was part of a project with, I think it was the University of Georgia, answering the question, can geriatrics build muscle mass? Okay, so put all this together. Here's a World War II veteran, and he's talking about his combat. The guy is in such good shape. We're walking like madmen, and the fat, overweight, young photographer can't keep up. <laughs> and the other one is a little bit further kind of coaching him along, saying, come on, we'll get more photos. And the two guys didn't know each other, but he felt that the other one was having a heart attack. And for me, I looked and I saw in that little you know, tableau, for lack of a better term, really the clash of generations and the clash of the greatest generation with youth and with privilege. I mean, here we were, we lived in such a great world that we could get incredibly overweight to the point where we didn't need to be in shape. But for Punchy, he wanted to be in shape and so strong that even in his 80s, he's thinking, can I build muscle mass? And it all comes together when I'm able to get a story and I have to keep up with him. So in the back of my head, I'm thinking to myself, there's something poetic about this. It's the passing on of a generation, an ethic, a belief. And later on that, that evening, we started giving that poor photographer who couldn't keep up, just gave him crap, you know. You know dude, maybe, maybe when you're 80 years old, you, you can go in, go in a, uh, a university-supported study on how to build muscle mass. But that story always stick, sticks with me about the value that these these people who have done incredible things, they're not just doddering old men or doddering old ladies. Their age and wisdom is vital up until the point you die. Yeah, that is that's some powerful stuff, that's for sure. I mean Yeah, yeah. And I and so uh, and that's the kind of stuff I get to live. So when I tell people I interview old guys and I draw their airplanes, this is, these are the kind of people I get to hang around. And I, I'm a fly on the wall of some of the coolest people on earth. That is true. I mean, heck, when you get a name like Punchy, I mean, you're, you're, <laughs> yeah. you're yeah. going to be pretty yeah. famous. Well, Google him. Google <laughs> Punchy Powell. I mean, if you do, it, it, you'll learn all about the guy. <laughs> all about him. 
All right, Punchy Powell. All right, I like that name a lot. Yeah. So then, um, so then, yeah. So then, uh, my next question I have for you is like a person you've kind of interviewed, and you've been all over the world pretty much. And uh, have you been have you been to Vietnam before? Or oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Many times. Yep. Uh, what's so then? I guess I want to focus that question more of what's it like interviewing like a person from Vietnam who like fought like a Vietnamese person in the Vietnam War like. Can you talk about that? Or? Yeah. Oh, certainly. It, uh, first of all, the language barrier is amazing. Uh, learning German, learning French, or some of those other languages—that's uh, they—they they make sense. But the Asian tonal languages—they—they're weird. So you definitely have to have a, a translator. But you definitely have to have a translator that knows you, <laughs> and that you trust. And that also knows who you're talking to. So when the interview dynamic is completely different. But there was a, a, a well, there, if, if Vietnamese culture, if you distinguish yourself in combat, you know, they call you a hero, and rightly so. So I was out having dinner at the private club of a highly, highly decorated Vietnam War North Vietnamese MiG pilot. He is... Uh, I think even the, oh, we Americans, we give him, I think, six or seven victor, victories. And I won't attempt to, to pronounce his name. But we were having a great, great long time and probably a bunch of bottles of wine and having a great discussion through the translators about the air war in North Vietnam. And he, at the end of the, end of the night, he put his arm around me and through the translator... He said, you know, John, you Americans have got to get over your guilt about the Vietnam War. He says, the guilt of the Vietnam War is pervading your culture. It's pervading everything that you guys do. And the translator is recognizing what's being said here. So he's kind of saying it like, wow, I'm really getting something profound. And this, I, on another visit, I got, I got to spend time with this gentleman as well, but that moment in interviewing the enemy, and it wasn't the first time I ever met the enemy, but that moment really helped me understand that the enemy sees things essentially the same way that we do. But the enemy's perspective is something that I always want to try to get. So hearing, we've got to get over our guilt, because he was right guilt of the Vietnam War and the inferiority complex that we've developed about it has tainted how we learn about the Vietnam War, how we study the Vietnam War, and even part of the national narrative. I've, I've learned that we've got to get past the guilt, that there are plenty of wonderful stories of the Vietnam War. And in many ways, we fulfilled as a nation our contract to our perceived obligations well, way above and beyond what uh, what the current history narrative gives us. So that's that's just a, one story of me being in Vietnam, and I've been very fortunate to uh, have been there a number of times, and I got to teach in Hanoi and do some cool stuff there. But that's you know, it's very interesting. Uh, the the guild part, especially too. It's like I guess, I mean yeah, I guess their cultures be viewed a little different, but yeah, I mean. For them, I guess, like, you know, they considered, I guess, they won the war because we pulled out, if I'm remembering correctly. So, um, but it's just kind of weird that, like, they don't even, what, do they even talk about it much? Or is it kind of like just like another kind of moment in their history where it's just, 
Yeah, the, the, you, you, here's here's how they okay. We view the Vietnam War. We just you know the platoon or full metal, metal jacket or apocalypse now, but you got to remember to them the Vietnam War goes back to 1942 or 41, and it encompasses the French, the Chinese, the Japanese, the Americans, sometimes the British, sometimes the Australians, and so they have a completely different. They have a bigger view. It was all part of a. The American War, that's what they'll call it. The American War is part of a, just part of a, a small part of a greater, greater narrative. And it, and their idea and how they won the war, I think a good, good case can be made that tactically the United States absolutely won that war and we lost it on the public opinion front, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that's why we need to, and for, and the other thing about the Vietnam War, they'll see it as a civil war. It's the North versus the South. It, so the analog to the American Civil War is something that they see as, as, uh, as, as legit. And I've, a number of Vietnam War historians on their side, the uh, Vietnamese, will often weave in stories. Well, your Civil War was like this. Our Civil War was like that. You know, so it's it's pretty cool. It, it, Sam, if you ever get a chance to go to Vietnam, I'm, I'm going to heartily recommend you do because you'll learn a lot about how nations work, how nations perceive their own culture, history. Okay, yeah, wow. So then, uh, so then, have you made like documentaries about like Vietnam or something like that? Because uh, I think if I mm -hmm. read correctly, you've had a documentary uh published on P or featured on pbs yeah I'm we've correct. had a few first of all when it's me i i appreciate that My, our show is called old guys in airplanes with john mollis yes but <laughs> if you look at them uh I, I i'm pretty proud of them and the reason i'm pretty proud of them is because we have a team that puts them on and yeah we've had a few distributed on pbs and we did two of them over in uh, in in vietnam one i brought a uh, Air Force pilot who was shot down to meet the guy who shot him down. Shot him down. That was a cool story. Wow, yeah. And then the other was I brought over a POW to meet the commandant of the Hanoi Hilton prison system. That wasn't such a cool story. <laughs> uh, I think both of them were distributed on PBS. Okay. Wow. Yeah. That's. I mean, that, I mean, is that something like is that something you get in the mail? Like your documentary's uh, been featured on PBS, or is this kind of thing you like you just sit down and all of a sudden like you see your documentary on there? Uh, no, I worked with South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I tend to be a big fan of South Dakota Public Broadcasting. We've probably got the best public broadcasting system in the country, and they work together. So they were instrumental in getting me distributed. And they're they're just outstanding people. I have nothing but great things to say about South Dakota Public Broadcasting. So no, I don't get a letter in the mail. <laughs> what I got was uh, Bob Bossy saying, "Yeah, uh, it's now distributed, and I think you're getting picked up." <laughs> you know, he's they're great. They're just great people. I got that. All right. Well, so I'm just gonna quickly wrap things up here. Do you got a big project you're planning uh, that's going that's coming up, or? Uh, and I don't want to jinx myself, but we're always looking for the next project, and we've got four, and they're, they're all lubricated with money. And the better we get, the more money it takes. So we're waiting fundi funding on four, four projects, and hopefully I'll find out answers uh, in the next few weeks. 
And once that happens, then we start production. And I'm not going to say anything other than, you know, wait for the press release because these next four are going to be amazing. Our next podcast will be available on November 19th. This podcast is the property of the School of Communication and Journalism at South Dakota State University, which reserves all rights to its use. Music by Cody M. Johnson and Tyler Addison James is licensed through AMP Music. Music.